This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. A looming general election, a party on the verge of an historic landslide, a leader with an iron-like grip on message discipline, waging war on complacency. Sound familiar? A new dawn has broken, has it not? Education, education and education. Tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. A politics of courage and honesty and trust. Welcome to Lessons in a Landslide, an exclusive Red Box podcast series to mark 20 years since New Labour swept to power. In interviews with all of the key players in the 1997 campaign, recorded before Theresa May triggered her snap election, we discuss life on the political front line and the behind-the-scenes battles between Labour's big beasts. In this episode, I speak to Margaret McDonough, who was the campaign coordinator in the 1997 campaign. She describes the birth of the pledge card, rowing with John Prescott in a cinema, and the panic of MPs who had been unexpectedly elected to the House of Commons. So, clause four, where is it? What is it we're selling? And let yeah. me start with the content. And he looked at me, <laughs> and I went, you haven't written it, have you? <laughs> and he went, well, no. Margaret, before we get into the campaign, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was your role in clause four. Because clause four now is this sort of shorthand for a party leader's going to do something big. But at the time it was big, and you had to play a big part in trying to get all the ducks in a row to make sure that it was passed. Just talk, talk us through, A, what was the clause for moment, and B, how did you sort yeah. of go about making it happen? Um, in October 94, Tony Blair went to conference, and I think the thing about Tony, which people don't really appreciate, he is a political being. He is driven by uh, politics. He's very easy to work with because that's what he sees his role to keep on the politics and the political message. And he builds a team around him and he's happy for them to get on with things. So he's not so much, you know, interested in the colour of the posters or all of this stuff. He absolutely keeps his eye on the um, political message. And he believed strongly um, that if the Labour Party couldn't change itself then 
it couldn't persuade the public that it could change the UK. Um, so he, like many of us, knew and many leaders before had failed and um, suffered the price for it. Others had decided not to take uh, it on. Intrinsically, for a democratic socialist party or a social democrat party, there is no point having at the central tenet of your constitution, your aims and objectives, a Marxist, Leninist basis for your politics. This is not fooling anybody, you know, yeah. it, it really isn't. So he decided to put something into a conference and uh, there was a resolution down, it narrowly lost, probably it was the best thing that ever happened. And he said in his uh, speech that he was going to carry on and um, take it to the country um, in terms of the party. N people listened to it and they had a really big clap, but I think nobody understood what they were che cheering. <laughs> it was one of those moments, probably, that Alistair later briefed that it was going to end up in a special conference. But in, in the moment in time, everyone was, you know, cheering, but like nobody quite knew what he was thinking about. And so he had this idea you know this was going to be central to his leadership and if he couldn't get this through there was actually no point being leader of the Labour Party and that he was going to put forward a new clause for and have a special conference um, the following year and it turned out in uh, April 95 if my mem memory serves me uh, well and um, like a lot of things Tony does he's not always great on the detail <laughs> so he has this big bold uh, idea and um, I I knew him and Gordon back from the 80s when they sort of set about some of their thinking about their party growth in membership, political change and so on. And I was working as a London regional organiser. I joined the Labour Party as a teenager. I'd been a trade union official. I started work for the Labour Party full time in 1996 in London. And he rang me over Christmas. Uh, 94. Tom Sawyer had recently become the General Secretary of the Labour Party and he said, would you come into head office to Walworth Road, don't go back to the London office after Christmas, would you go in and sort clause four? And I said, fine, I'll come and see you. And I said, so, clause four, where is it? You know, show it to me. Yeah. What is it we're selling? And let yeah. me start with the content. And he looked at me <laughs> and I went, you haven't written it, have you? And he went, well, and I, you haven't written it. And he said, well, no. So we don't know what we're selling, do we? We know what we don't want. We don't know what uh, we do want. And ultimately, we kind of, we decided to make a virtue of that. What we did was uh, we set up huge membership events, both in the party membership and uh, amongst trade unions uh, around the country. And Tony would go and he would do a short stump speech of about five minutes and then he would just do Q&A. And that's when he really honed his ability to do that. And we realised he was brilliant at question and answer sessions. Absolutely brilliant. This became a thing, you know, these sort of town hall meetings. It developed not just from then, but right through until he left. I've worked with lots of leaders of the Labour Party. I think both as um, leader in opposition and as prime minister, he went out and talked to more people than anyone else. And he was fantastic, um, you know, in that en environment, engaging with people. And as he was going around, he was absolutely taking on, 
you know, the dreams and views and wishes and challenges of all party members, some of them being very supportive and some of them being incredibly hostile. You may have heard um, one of these great stories. There are many great stories, but he gets around to uh, Liverpool and there is a woman in the back of the audience. And we're talking about these, you know, a thousand people could rock up to these events. You know, it wasn't sort of five men and a dog in a, you know, a small constituency office. And this woman at the back of the Liverpool uh, event um, got up and said, I know what you're about. I know what you're trying to do. Obviously, with the finger pointed, you're <laughs> trying to get Tories to vote for us. And in the split second, you could literally see everybody nodding along. Yeah, we know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get Tories to vote for us. And Tony stood there and halfway through this, he started to smile. And the kind of the penny, you, could, you know, like people talk about penny dropping. Literally, you could hear the penny dropping in the room as he went. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm that's trying to exactly do. That's <laughs> exactly what I'm trying to do. You know, that is exactly because if we cannot bring people with us, we can't form a government. And so, and, and actually, the biggest swings during that election were working class people. It wasn't that wealthy people. You know, they voted for us in greater numbers. You know, very senior middle class people. That's what we were trying to do. If you actually look at the numbers. It was working class people, skilled um, working class people, lower middle class people that were unsure of us. And, you know, that, 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 that was um, Tony's appeal. My view of Clause 4 was always that Tony wrote a better Clause 4 because at the point he was writing every word and that pen in his hand, you know, because he hand wrote it at that point, you know, he really had in his head the views of thousands of members and was able to distill it and produce something better than if he had written something that we then subsequently went out and sold. And, tried to sell, yeah, yeah. and either way, right then, you know, the party just wanted to win. They realised they were in their last chance saloon. But absolutely what he got, you know, was complete and utter support from the party, from all sections of the party. I'm not sure we'd have quite got that result if we'd um, done it the other way round. But I can't say that we really yeah. thought it through. It was, it, it was just It was that, more that, that he genuinely hadn't written it, rather it, than it, it was a, being a plan yeah, thing. Yeah, it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't a strategic thing, but it was the best thing that ever happened to us. Clause 4 is the sort of political shorthand now is a party leader tries to do something to define their leadership and if it fails that's their yeah. leadership over it. Is that how it felt when you were doing it? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, we knew. The, the Blair project yeah. would have gone no further. It would have, it would have, it would have gone no, it wouldn't yeah. have, how could he have stayed? Yeah. You know, he is a person of integrity, he would have gone and he'd have had yeah. to have gone, but also the country I think would have known that we weren't willing signal, to change. The signal that would have sent. And that clause four, I do think that lay out, you know, did lay out the purpose, really, really our, our, our politics in language, you know, that we could all buy into and understand, you know, our duties, our obligations, governing for the many, not the few. We all understood that. I do think that that purpose was something that could help strengthen you and show, you know, that like kind of through government in a way that the old clause would have been no help yeah. 
to you. Um, but it was also a, a big way of saying that, you know, and sort of putting new labour was new. It was changing one of the new? fundamental principles. It wasn't just the old Labour Party the same. New Labour was a new pitch to the pitch to the country. I suppose I would argue that um, in terms of the history of the Labour Party, we go up and down <laughs> over this. I would um, argue that the clause four we ended up to was always um, the fundamental basis of the Labour Party. Always, we were always uh, a ladder for social improvement, social and economic improvement collectively and individually. And so if you look at um, Harold Wilson or even some of the things that Clement Attlee was doing during those campaigns, I don't actually believe they're any different to that. So I think really it was going back to the purpose of the Labour Party and what it was formed for rather than it was new. What It was new in relationship to what the Labour Party had been like in the late 70s and, and the 80s. And, and, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. 80s. It was new in that sense, and it was a break, but it wasn't a break with the Labour Party. Yeah. So then you then you sort of were piled into a general election campaign. At what point did you feel like we're campaigning now? How 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 far out from May '97 did you feel like you were on a sort of war footing? I felt from that we were on a war footing and in a campaign from the day that Tony Blair stood for leadership of the okay. Labour Party in the summer of 1994. Um, I never felt that the campaign started in the short campaign. So I think very clearly it was Clause 4 and then building on that was obviously the manifesto, the early manifesto. I don't think it ever stopped. And what was it, what was it like? I mean, looking back now, there are a lot of big beasts sort of in mm. that team is Gordon Brown and John Prescott and Peter Manson and Alastair Campbell mm. and there were a lot of if you look back through the memoirs you've got Claire Short going off in one direction and John Prescott going off in mm. what was it like from your point of view trying to sort of was it a case of massaging egos or did you have to try and was it like herding cats how did you deal with all those big players I mean the part, in a way the party was lucky to have so many big players mm. but there, there did seem a to strength be, is always a weakness yes isn't there it? did seem to be a lot of com yeah, conflict um, there was an awful lot of conflict and challenge. I think that you need that if you're going to get something that's brilliant. I don't think it always feels like it if you're in the middle of it. Obviously for somebody like me, irrespective of their inability, on some, some occasions they get on brilliantly, some occasions they don't get on well, everyone has their own uh, agenda and these are important things, you know, we're not building widgets here. <laughs> you know, we all, we're in it because we believe this stuff, you know, this is, this is really important stuff, you know, the Labour Party might not continue to exist. We believe that we can improve our country, we think that we can make lives better for people, you know, these are stuff that is worth fighting for. But, um, you know, I, I was a fairly young woman at the time, but whatever happened, you know, I had to get the show on the road. You know, things had to be done on time, they had to be delivered, they had to be coherent, they had to be clear to the public. You know, um, politicians aren't kind of responsible for managing things, <laughs> you know, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that, yeah. That's not with the parliamentary democracy how things are, are set up. So I suppose you, you have to find ways of making things happen and I suppose you just either do that individually, you, you have to be tough 
And also you have to, I think, find networks in people you can really rely on to help you. So Angie Hunter was always um, great for me. You know, sometimes we worked together on it or sometimes, you know, you would work for individual politicians or you might have a difficulty with an individual politician at certain times because they were feel that they were being kept out of the loop and um, so you have to develop that kind of relationship of trust but it you know obviously it was difficult on the inside at times but you know also it it was great as well. It's striking how those difficulties didn't sort of spill out into the open until much later that actually looking back now when people look back and remember what happened it sounds very fractious and you had lots of people sort of jostling or moaning or whatever but actually that didn't become the hallmark of the Labour campaign in a way that so it was difficult but not difficult people kept it inside the absolutely and I also think though you're not at that stage you're not running a government you're not in a different department you can have big arguments in the same room once you're in departments and you're away from one another and then that's when you get it's more a, briefing. The, yeah, yeah, you get more. briefing and people misunderstand uh, people. I think that's more difficult. I had, for example, and I don't think he'd disagree um, with this, I had quite a difficult relationship with John Prescott uh, in the early years. You know, our politics is quite different. And um, I'm, I remember he was really hacked off with something that I hadn't told him about I think actually you know it was probably Tony Blair's responsibility to tell him but you know he's not going to kick uh, metaphorically Tony Blair you know it's kind of easier to have a, a, a go at me but to his credit um, John Prescott you know was one ended up one of the most um, supportive people I worked with but this particular day he was really fed up with something not knowing something and he said oh, well you I haven't got time now you better come back at five o'clock so I went back at five and he was coming down the stairs with his coat on and he'd obviously forgot, um, you know, that he'd agreed to meet me and give me a kicking about something. So he said, oh, I forgot. Um, I've just got to get out of here. Come along with me. And we walked up Whitehall and uh, we started arguing about whatever it was. You know, it's so important. I can't even remember. <laughs> and we walked up Whitehall and uh, we find ourselves um, in Leicester Square. He's going to the um, cinema. So he goes, oh, do you want to come to the pictures then? And we're outside the Odeon <laughs> queuing and we're still having this row. And I see everyone um, looking at me. He's quite famous at that time and I think they probably realise that I'm not Pauline <laughs> as this row goes on. So he's looking for his money and then I grab it off him and I, I get the tickets and I take charge and I said, come on then. And the film's already started and I can just see these uh, two seats in the middle of this row. And I go in there then and we climb over these people and I catch my foot in some, you know, cinema goer's bag and I start flying in the air. I fall over him, he falls down and we're now like four, four or five uh, uh, cinema goes. And I look up and the credits are coming up of the film and I realise that we're in the wrong cinema. <laughs> and I'm like, do you know what I mean? I'm a young woman and I'm like, oh, come on then. And we sort of, like, everyone's, the lights are coming up and everyone's looking at us and I'm getting him out of the cinema so that we can go into the right cinema. And we leave there and I know I've got loads of people waiting back in the office to see, see me. I never said to anyone I was going off to the cinema with John Prescott anyway. <laughs> we 
come back and we walked back down Whitehall and then we kind of both calmed down and he said, oh, do you fancy going for something um, to eat? And we walked past this kind of pasta place and I kind of walked in and we sat down, we started chatting. And at that stage, you know, it was then, um, I'm only saying now what he's publicly discussed, you know, and it was at that stage, you know, he sat down and he talked to me and he said how he couldn't have gone into the restaurant on his own. And, um, you know, subsequently we know that he had, um, you know, an eating disorder yeah. and in many ways was painfully shy. I think it's those individual experiences that you have with people when you can kind of find a sort of personal relationship uh, when you're able to talk to somebody about something that's troubling them or a vulnerability that they have you know you think you know what I know now as a much older woman you know I understand these things much more but it, it, it's it's when, when you can find that relationship um, with people it obviously makes those sorts of very stressful sit situations much easier and if you do suffer from something you know like an eating disorder that pressure you know, in those stressful situations are going to make those things even worse. Yeah, even, yeah. E even worse. And, and you don't think them, do you? You know, you, 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 you know it's just very easy to see To be so caught up in work and, yeah. and And just see people, oh, there's a tough guy. And One of the impressions is it was quite a macho team and it was, you know, a lot of jockeying to be alpha males and that sort of thing. Is yeah. that your impression of it? Even if that was an outward impression that everyone was giving, if... In, in uh, I'd say I was pretty alpha. Um, <laughs> I don't, um, I don't, yeah, I think we all were really, I mean, you would drown among those group of people if you, if you, if you, if you hadn't been alpha. Um, Do you I don't think Tony's alpha. I think of all the people, uh, I do agree with you most. Philip Gould wasn't. Yeah. Philip Gould's much more a people person and... Um, less likely to throw his weight around than the others much more yeah. thoughtful yeah. but we all come from sort of different you know I'm a party person you know they're politicians and obviously you know you know what's coming in to the room there are you know issues between Gordon and Peter you know perhaps maybe Gordon hoped that Peter would have supported him or at least remained neutral and felt you know he'd been his friend for a long time so there are all those sorts of things going on in the room. That there's a lot of history there. The there's a lot of history that you probably don't quite, you know, appreciate and kind of became unresolved Yeah. until later on for them. Well, of course, and then, you know, Peter um, famously came back. Mm. In terms of the, the, how the campaign unfolded, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was Tatton and Martin Bell. Mm. Uh, and so Tatton was... Neil Hamilton was the Tory MP who was caught up mm. in, he was sort of became a figurehead of mm. the Tory scandals. Mm. And then this idea was hatched that the Labour Party wouldn't stand and an independent would be put up. And then does that sort of fall to you to make that happen? Generally speaking, I suppose that we would all discuss things. It's not so much an idea is hatched. Obviously, an independent would come forward. I think our answer would be the way that we react yeah. to that and whether we think it's absolutely right at the time because generally speaking the Labour Party wouldn't vacate a seat. Both the candidate and the local constituency party decided that that was the best way forward. 
not everyone would do that and I think kind of good on those people that that, that made that decision yeah because it was it is one of the sort of memorable parts of the the campaign Martin Bunn in his white suit <laughs> riding into town and things like endorsements mm. What role did you sort of play in that, trying to get, not show-busy campaign, but it had, if you look back now, politics, I think celebrities and things are far yes. more reluctant to get involved. But, you know, people were, did want to get involved. You know, where they had something to say, where they're political, where somebody has a particular issue mm. that they want to drive home, you know, if, um, you know, if it's a health issue or if it's, um, let's say it's something to do with the lottery and it's sport people and it's sports funding i think the um i do think if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. There is a real issue, you know, if you look at the um, recent American campaign with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I think if um, great the celebrities put themselves forward, but I think it is much better with you know when it for them when it can be done in um, context. They have but, a story that says I'm backing X because I've got a concern about this policy or that policy. Yeah, they rather can, they, than a they, general... can, they can relate it to somebody yeah, yeah. somewhere, or, or they're very political them, yeah. themselves. And, and from a party's point of view, it has more impact on voters if there is a, a story to tell rather than just... Yeah, ab absolutely, and it, and, it, and it gives you um, a way to break through, doesn't it? You know, it catches your eye and it interests yeah. you. Yeah, I, I mean, we had enormous support across the board. I would say endorsements are from actors, musicians, but they also are right through to head teachers or police officers or, you know, maybe people that are supporting something because they've been a victim of crime. So I would see um, endorsement really, really broad. It also might be about, you know, people who fund us. The thing about the 97 campaign that it was very unified, mm. known very much now, but we introduced a pledge card. And I had gone out and I'd worked on 
the first Clinton-Gore campaign in California and it was a marginal state at the moment and I picked up a pledge card that was on a health plebiscite. They put questions on the uh, ballot and we'd come back and we'd said, you know, how do we get everybody to kind of, you know, be on the single message and really communicate this? And um, uh, our, age, our advertising agency and Peter Hyman, we were talking about it and I remember taking, I'd kept the pledge card, this was now, I don't know, 96 and I'd been out in America in 92 and I kept it in my wallet and I thought, <laughs> I said, you know, we should do. What we said to the politicians was, you know, we need to do this pledge card, it will really help members on the doorstep communicate to the voters about what we're here for and what we knew um, particularly is Labour voters who were less likely to vote, you know, who might have had difficult lives, they'd been let down by politicians and politics in the past, their lives were quite tough, and they didn't want loads of promises. It was more the sense of, you know, if you if you fix my gate, you know, I believe that you'll be able to go, uh, you know, along and, you know, sort out world peace or whatever it was. You know, I kind of, I really need to understand that you'll do stuff. And so we knew to get people to vote, we had to kind of be, have a very personal relationships with people. But we also knew that politicians get a bit bored, so they start talking about all sorts of things. <laughs> and so over about a year, we just want them to say the same stuff. So we did this pledge card and we said to the politicians, this is for the party. It'd be great if you could help the party if you used it as well. But of course, it was never really about the party. It was always to keep the politicians on message. St stay on the so, stay on so the points on the plate. You, Tony yeah. Blair, and John Prescott was brilliant at it. You know, you shadow cabinet can have this, and you can all be saying the same thing, and not like it's, there's all sorts of different Labour parties. There is only one Labour party, and we were clear, you know, what we were going to do and how much it was going to cost. And I, 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 this is goes, goes back to where I started. You know, Tony Blair is very good at this. What, he's, uh, what he um, sets out for people is very big narrative and the politics and the message. Because people know if they elect you for four or five years, you know, there's something that's going to happen two years in that couldn't possibly have been thought through. What they want to know, Matt, what sort of guy are you under pressure? You know, if this sort of ha happens, what's your kind of reaction going um, you know, to it be? And I think this is where Ed Miliband got himself, in, himself into a lot of trouble. All he wanted was different policy offers. You know, it was like David Axelrod said, you know, whatever Labour's doing, you're going to get a free microwave yeah. with it. You know, Ed Miliband is very into transactional politics rather than big message politics, which is where Tony Blair is. So when we had policies, we only had symbolic policies. These are the sorts of things that we're going to do to solve some of these problems but that was absolutely you know the kind of fun of it um, I wanted to ask you about barking cats and meowing dogs yes what happened with that so that John Major originally said dogs bark cats meow and Labour put up taxes yes and then what did you have to do in response right um, this was the funniest leaflet and <laughs> poem ever produced and uh, it was written by Matthew Taylor who's um, a great writer and incredibly funny and uh, he wrote um, this poem about it and we got staff to dress up as cats and dogs <laughs> and to um, you know to follow conservative ministers around these sorts of things I think um, maybe are a little bit inside a football for the parties you know they're psychological wars but they also 
get your team, you know, because otherwise this is sort of 16, 18 hours a day. It gives you a bit of fun, you know, it challenges the opposition. I'm not sure that it makes a huge difference to the public. But one of the things it did, if, if you think about the territory we're playing in, we are showing that we can run really good public services, um, but they are not sure that we can run the economy and they're not sure that we will really respect the hard work and the money they earn and not sort of tax them to the hilt. So all the time we want to play in one of our spaces. We either want to play positively or we want to get rid of a, a weakness or neutralise a weakness. So taxes for us is an area that we want to neutralise. So we would but Instead of running on. away from it and trying not to talk about it, you dress people up as cats and dogs and you, it becomes a f fun thing and it distracts from the... Yeah, well, we want to challenge. Yeah. So how do you challenge the truth that Labour Party is a high-tax party, is tax and spend, that we don't respect your hard work and we'll just take your, you know, rob you of your money? It has to be that we will never, never, never allow that sort of attack on us to go unanswered. And you have to find lots of creative ways, ways to do of it. doing exactly, it. And yeah, that yeah. is one, it's a fun thing to do. It's absolutely rooted yeah. in our understanding of the Labour Party's strengths and weaknesses yeah. and what we have to do. You know, you get into the campaign proper, presumably that's a sort of relentless seven day, yeah. seven days a week. And what, what are you, where are you during the campaign? What are you, yeah. what are you, what are you doing? The short campaign is really a rerun of everything we've done. We know where our voters are. We've been, most for example, of our key seats and more, we will have spoken to four fifths of every single resident, you know, 80%. The election campaign is spent reminding them of our conversations with them. And we are doing that on television, in key campaigner meetings, on the doorstep, on phones, in leaflet leaflets. It is a reminder of a campaign. It's not a new uh, campaign and it's trying to find innovative uh, ways that we can do this. Obviously, you know, this is all pre, most of us had pagers, you know, we didn't, if we had a mobile phone, it was a huge thing. You know, there wasn't loads and loads of emails, alone something like, you know, Facebook or other forms of social media. So we were as innovative as it was possible to be um, in that environment. In Millbank, we have very early um, morning meetings and, you know, we have three or four meetings together as the day goes on. Obviously, Tony Blair and John Prescott are on the roads in their various vehicles. <laughs> and we- Buses and helicopters. Buses and, and helicopters, and, yeah. and we're touching base with them yeah. uh, throughout the day. But, you know, at that point we have a grid and we know, you know, every day where we're gonna be, what we're gonna be doing, what message we're gonna be on. You know, there isn't huge amounts we're changing. We know that um, it would be easy to become stale. So, you know, particularly we know what we're doing in the first 48 hours. You know, we're like, um, dare I say, I shouldn't really say this, my own football team, AFC uh, Wimbledon. <laughs> we start off great and occasionally, very occasionally, we lose a little bit of steam. And certainly some people thought that had happened in the 92 general election. I don't agree. We were always behind. Um, it was the uh, opinion polls that were 
sampling wrong. Um, but anyway, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a familiar a, phrase. <laughs> there, there, there is um, a big conversation about that. But we knew we were going to launch, relaunch in the last five days, and we made sure, you know, there were fresh legs, there were fresh people that were just concentrating on the last five days. And if, I don't know if you recall this, but you know, we put purple posters everywhere. We changed all the colours. Um, and had a big launched. Um, out, there was a team of people just working on the last five oh, days. Just working yeah. on the last five days. That was right. But it, but it, but it was mostly, you know, inside, you know, in Millbank Tower. Yeah. Um, you know, from early morning till late at night in a open plan. You know, really delivering what we'd already, you know, set out. And what about things like posters? Because in a way, the, the political posters are sort of dying art because they mm. get unveiled by parties now. We get emailed a JPEG and nobody's ever sure if that mm. they ever sort of go up. But in mm. definitely 92 and 97, posters, mm. posters did go up a lot. Do you think, do they, do they make any difference? Is it just about intimidating the opposition? Do they, or is it just about being everywhere and reminding people that you're the side on the on the up I think posters are about weight I think um, you know 20 years the world has moved on there's yeah. lots of kind of mediums and outlets Britain is unusual uh, in that you're not allowed to buy broadcast media so you can't advertise on the television yeah. or the radio posters were really important in the weight that we were buying them in a world that there was not many distribution channels media out outlets I think what they do is they reinforce and they remind they can't create something that's not there but absolutely we would get a catalogue of all the addresses I would send all the poster sites to an individual constituency party and I would ask them to check that they were up <laughs> yeah Are there any posters which you thought really did work or ones that you you didn't like and didn't go out positive posters work really well. I think that people get negative media wrong. I think you've got to be clear about the offer, you know, the dream, the change, the hope that you're offering people before you explain why you don't think that somebody should vote for somebody else. I think um, that went badly wrong in the Scottish refer uh, referendum and it went badly wrong in the European refer referendum. I don't think you should be telling people they can't do stuff. I think you've got to offer a future of change and hope and I thought they did that um, really well. I thought we were really good at neutralising, Tony may not agree with this and certainly Gordon and I were very, very strong on doing this, is neutralising issues about whether we would go into the Euro yeah. and we did a poster that Tony signed about the tri triple lock, uh, cabinet, um, parliament and the public would give their, would say yes before we went into the Euro. I thought we were always trying to make sure that people with us didn't go back because in all of us you know often behaviorally that's what we attempt to do so I thought I thought that that was strategically important um, and I think it was an important thing to do because I actually I don't think you could change the current currency without going through that yeah, yeah. go through go through that process and so um, then on the election day itself mm. where were you what were you what did you because you sort of building up well, I this. broke out I escaped my sister had been a councillor since she was 21 and um, she'd fought the constituency where that I first joined and where we lived and where we grew up. I happened to 
lived 500 yards um, in South London from where I was born. Um, as I say, it was where I joined the Labour Party at 15. In 1982, our then Labour MP, a chap called uh, Bruce Douglas Mann, he defected to the SDP. Okay. He wasn't always an astute politician. He said at the time, I'll call a by-election. Not thinking it through. And everyone <laughs> in the SDP, I'm sure, put their heads in their hands. And... Uh, thought, oh my God. And you generally at that time, the convention was you had three months to do it. And he kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And he got himself into a corner. He finally moved the writ, only for the Falkland Ward to be called. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that now famously is the last time that the governing party taken a seat. In 1982. Yeah. And we lost it to Angela Rumbold, obviously, until Copeland. Until Copeland, which is why, which is and, why it's and, sort of you know, fresh. 20 years, you know, um, anniversary of 1997, this is a historic moment for all sorts of reasons. But so Mitchum and Morden was lost to the Conservatives um, in uh, 1982, and my sister fought the election in 1987, and she fought it in 1992, and she lost both times. So, kind of 1997 was her last uh, go at it. And what can you do on the day of a general election? You know, everyone looks, sits there looking at the television. I absolutely... <laughs> there's nothing on television. There's nothing sort of... on it. Just p talking heads, <laughs> people talking about what might happen if. And I thought, God, that'll drive me mad. We never thought about the result. Tony and others were in the same situation. You know. We, I never believed that we could win 92. I kept telling people I got in so many fights, but I'm just absolutely, it's up to the public, it's up to the day. So I went round knocking up in Mitchell and Morden um, with my sister Siobhan and, you know, other activists in the constituency on the uh, day. And we were on this estate, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, Eastfields in Mitcham. Pathways were packed with people coming out of their houses at 11 o'clock in the morning, waving at Siobhan and, um, you know, walking down the roads, polling stations packed. And I said to her, do you know what this means? And she said, what? And I said, we've got a landslide today and you've got a landslide. It was only in that 11 o'clock in the morning on polling day did I ever allow myself to believe and we knocked up until 10 and I went to the count with her. And obviously we've got this big event at the Festival Hall. And uh, of course, um, you know, my mum and dad are at the count and I'm gonna stay with her till the result is announced. You know, I know there's no issue that she's gonna win, but you know, um, families come first. And I'm looking at the clock and I think, God, and so they take ages, they take hours. <laughs> to count and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, and it's like half two, three, I can't remember what the result finally came in, three, half three, maybe later. And I was with my friend, uh, Wahid Ali, who'd been knocking up with me and final result, we both jumped in the car and went up to the festival hall and I got a call, um, God rest his soul, from Robin Cook. Um, who just come down from Edinburgh and he was at the airport and he was in his car and he said, you're not at the festival hall, are you? And I went, no, I'm just coming from the count in Mitcham. And he went, oh, I'll race you. And we kind of literally <laughs> at that time in the morning, we had a, a race to see who was going to get the festival hall first. And who, who did? Might have been me. <laughs> I think it might have I been. I think we'll say. It was, and it, you know, it was kind of just, you know, really strange when you saw all of those... People were, 
having a great time, you know, there was lots of music, the Festival Hall is a beautiful place to be, but some people were just looking at the television thinking, oh my God. And there were people oh who God. weren't expecting to win, and people who won, and then people who um, nobody, it seems, really expected a landslide on the scale, and it, it sort of, as each result rolled in, it sort of dawned on everybody more how yeah. sort of historic it was. Yeah, and, and we went out to the balcony, it's where Tony came in and um, when he came down from Sedgefield and did his speech. Uh, Stephen Twigg was in his Land Rover and he was on the uh, Waterloo Bridge and he got out and he looked down um, at us at the Festival Hall and I just remember people were out on the streets everywhere and they just formed around him and they looked like they were going to crush him and <laughs> I looked up at the bridge and I could see him jumping into the Land Rover and uh, driving away. I just think he got a nauseous shock about how it was everybody's victory, you know, everybody's hopes yeah. and fears for a different country, a more optimistic, um, you know, a country with more opportunities. You know, it was just an amazing moment in time that people generally had been caught up with. And this goes on till about six o'clock in the morning. And uh, Peter said to me, we better go back to Millbank and see who's elected. So a group of us went back to Millbank and we started to field calls. And we had candidates on the end of the phone saying, I didn't expect to get elected, <laughs> or how am I gonna tell my wife? <laughs> or, do you know what I mean? It was sort of, it changed, absolutely changed people's lives. And I said, uh, so I said, oh, I better go down to Downing Street to get it ready. And there's a fantastic woman who I still think is working for the Labour Party called Jackie Stacey went down with me. While I always said to people, no one is gonna party, you know, until the polls are shut at 10 o'clock, I did something a bit naughty and, and that was, um, I booked a, I got a coach booked so um, it could bring uh, activists from my constituency up into Downing Street. Yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it much. And but it was your local, from your local Labour Party? Local party yeah. members that canvassed, you know, yeah, there yeah. might have been members 50 years, small children, anybody that would get on the bus, you yeah. know. And I'd never really thought it through, but I just thought I want them to see it. Um, but of course, when I got to Downing Street, there were absolutely thousands <laughs> of people there. And um, Jackie and I went down the road and John Major came out with his family and made a fantastic speech. And I remember thinking, oh, I've got so much to do. You know, I've got to get these people in. I've got to do this. I wish he would hurry up. I actually slapped myself kind of two minutes into his speech and thought to myself, we will be here one day. This is really, really historic. And absolutely, you have got to be in this moment. And then, after it was amazing, that Downing Street moment, after it was all over, I went back to Millbank. Most people had gone home by then. You know, we'd all been up for about um, 48 hours. And I, uh, I was about the only person there. And <laughs> I, I, you know, I wasn't paid a huge amount at the time. And I remember getting a cab home. And then I get home and this is, you know, th these campaigns glamour all the way. I remember looking in my handbag 
and I couldn't find my keys. <laughs> and I was so exhausted, I just sat down on the step and burst into tears. So that was my recollection of 1997. And that evening, so this was about three or four o'clock in the evening, asked a big group of friends who were lay party members around who'd been incredibly supportive to me. And uh, I said, you know, come round at eight o'clock and I'll make you all breakfast, even though it's eight o'clock at night, because I want to re-watch all the results. So somebody had taped it and we sat there and we just re-watched the results. So just very quickly, how do you feel now looking back at that and the, the, the way where the Labour Party is now? Well, when it is a long time ago, but it feels like yeah, yeah, um, millions of years ago. I think the Labour Party gives you tremendous highs and breaks your heart at the same time. And, and if anyone, I'm sure only the politically committed would listen to this podcast. But if you haven't, you know, do join, do get involved in the <laughs> Labour Party. It's the most important thing I've ever done. What I would say to you is that the Labour Party is absolutely com- capable of being the best. It isn't the best right now. We are in a very serious uh, problem, but we have the potential to change and it's up to the current younger generation of politics to seize this moment and sort it out. Margaret Madonna, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Boxes series Lessons in a Landslide. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes using iTunes on your Android device and sign up to my morning red box email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.